Welcome. This is Women Behind Wool, a podcast introducing you to the female face of the Australian wool industry. Once you feel wool shorn from a sheep, it's, it's hard not to fall in love with it. It's natural, it's organic and it's sustainable. Australia produces the finest wool on the planet. I'm actually a model full-time, but whenever I can come home, I, I try to make it home to help out with the work. I can remember being plonked in the playpen, in the shearing shed, and out mustering with mum from a very early age. Yes, I like benching. I like inoculate. I like doing anything with sheep, and I really enjoy mustering. Hello and welcome back to Women Behind Wool. We are back for a second season uh, in our second year and we've got some fabulous women to profile and feature this year. In fact, we've had such a tricky time choosing who to actually put on the podcast this year because there's been so many wonderful suggestions and women just doing great things. But um, Penn and I thought that it was also really important to properly introduce ourselves this year. So before we tell you a little bit more about what's coming up on Women Behind Wool for this season over the next eight episodes, we wanted to tell you a little bit more about our backgrounds, what we do on a daily basis and our involvement in the wool industry. And so we're going to interview each other. Um, How are you, Ben? It's good to be back. Hi, Sky. It's so good to be back, isn't it? Um, we've had so much fun the last few months preparing for this podcast and going through all the guests and choosing them and then coming up with more suggestions and re-choosing and then changing our minds because there's so many good stories. So I'm glad Isn't we're it's... finally at the stage where we can get them out. It's such a pleasure. It just, it's as a, as a journey and it, it's just great. It, there is every week I look and I'm like, oh, there's more and another person we should have done that we've already got a list going for next year as well don't we I know the wish list just keeps growing and I love that um people keep sending us suggestions too so every time you think yeah we've got it sorted um someone else pops in and says have you heard about my friend or my granny or whatever it is um which is really nice so if anyone's listening that thinks oh I was kind of thinking about someone I should tell them about please do because we absolutely love all the different stories yeah yeah um so I guess we should probably interview each other which feels funny because we've known each other for 38 years (laughs) oh my gosh is that how long it is actually it's not really because I think we were like 12 when we met oh yes I forget how old I am (laughs) (laughs) did that just shock you when I said 38 (laughs) (laughs) uh I know feels like we just left school last year but no um so yes I think um we forget that because we've known each other for so long, um, we probably haven't really explained to everyone listening what our story is and why we are doing this. So, Sky, tell me about your involvement in wool. Have you, you've always, I'm going to try and interview you like I don't know the answer to this question. But <laughs> it's a bit odd, isn't it? You've grown up in the wool industry, right? Yeah, so... I've definitely grown up in the in the wool industry, very similar to you. Um, grew up on a fine wool merino farm, not a stud, but 
just a farm um, and we that's at Bookham, which is on um, the New South Wales Southern Tablelands. It's near Yass. It's on the Hume Highway. Um, it's really quite a chilly area in winter, but it can get really hot in summer. And, like, I just think when I share my stories of my childhood with other um, peers who are the same age as me, I sometimes feel like I've missed out on a little bit, but I also feel like I've been so very lucky and highly influenced by it. We were always expected to work on the farm. There was, um, yeah, there was not much respect for sitting around doing nothing and um, there was never, I, I don't know any movies from growing up. I don't know any TV shows, no music. We were always outdoors and we were usually doing all our mustering on horseback. So, yeah, the shearing shed was just as they always are, just up the road from the house and shearing was always such a huge time for our family. And so wool and sheep and everything about it is completely embedded in my childhood and me. It sounds so idyllic when you um, talk about it, but at the time, did you enjoy it or were you like, Dad, I want to go and watch a movie like all the cool town kids are doing. I don't want to yeah. be out here doing sheep work. Yeah, no, it's certainly something that you appreciate in hindsight. It was just life, but there were times I was yeah. like, oh, I want to be inside. And, um, you know, this was in the late 80s, early 90s where there were no mobile phones CDs didn't exist. It was all tapes and I'd run home. I'd have to ask him permission. Can I please run home because they're about to have top 40 on and I want to tape it, <laughs> I want to record it. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Um, yes, no, but I, but I look back now and think, gosh, aren't we are just so lucky. It's instilled so many wonderful qualities in me. Um, yeah, it, a good work ethic, um, a thorough understanding and empathy for life on the land and the people that mm. lead a life on the land and that plays into what I do every day yeah the wisdom of parents hey like um they knew what they were like giving us as kids even if we didn't get it yeah yeah hopefully we're the same now oh, hopefully oh, there's still time for mine to come good <laughs> <laughs> hey and so now so you live on a farm now with your husband and your kids yeah, so I don't know, serendipitously, I live on a farm which is pretty much like it's 40 minutes away from where I grew up and now I live in a little tiny, tiny, tiny village called Blakeney Creek. It's near Gunning, um, on again, on the southern tablelands. Um, and, yeah, we also have fine wool merinos here, finer than at um, Bookham. The country's a bit of lesser quality and, yeah, the fine wool sheep goes much better here so we're sort of 16 to 17 micron and starting our journey into farming and trying to improve the product and get more productivity from our sheep all the time so it's been an interesting start we um, started at the right in the middle of the drought so things have only been going up from there which has been good (laughs) so good and so rewarding like don't you just love watching um, year after year, all the decisions you make and the things that you put into it, like coming to fruition, like watching the wool improve or the lambing rates or whatever it is that you're particularly focused on. Like it's the most rewarding thing. Yeah, totally. I have to admit though, while I know and understand exactly what all of that is about, 
Um, I'm not very hands-on with the management. I can do anything and I will do anything, but um, just having three young kids and managing them has been quite busy, as you can, as you know, as, it, as most people probably listening have experienced or seen. And, yeah, and then also my other um, profession is as a journalist and a writer and a podcaster, so that has also, as a diversification from farm income, taken up a lot of time. Yeah, exactly. You have no spare time. You've got a bit on your plate. So how does it work like between you and your husband? Would you say that you are his worker, that you just do what you're told and he makes all the decisions or do you make decisions together? Like, Because this is one of the things that I find with women behind wool. So many women in a wool growing operation like yours say oh no I'm I'm not really like part of it like my husband does it all but there's still an intrinsic part it's just that they're not you know seen as the head of it and making all the decisions but no doubt you know you sit at home at night with a beer and a wine and chat about it or you you know whatever um totally is that kind of how it is with you guys yeah so I think that's the thing on that too is that I suppose the women um who are in the same position as I never actually get asked that question and were they to have to answer it and put it into words they'd be like oh yeah no no I do probably do quite a bit but I just do it with ease and without even thinking and that's always been Mm. the way that it is and they don't really realize the contribution and the impact that they are having and have had for a very long time but so to answer your question um not really the worker for Damo, but I can do, that's the thing that I see of great value. Like he can be like, Sky, I need you to do this today. Um, can you drench some ewes or can you move these ewes or um, can you rouse about? And I can do that, no questions asked. But, yeah, it's very much him and he does make the decisions, but everything is run by um, not run by me, but we discuss it all together, and and certainly in a wool sense and a sheep's uh, in, in a wool sense, not the sheep breeding side of things, but the wool sense. Um, that's well and truly my background, and um, I love that. And yeah, we're working on that together. But I definitely have more to say in that field of things. Yeah, I love that part too. That's the fun part. Better than just the drenching and rousabouting parts. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so you've also mentioned um, that you're, well, really running a bit of a podcast empire in your household. Could, I know you're going to play it down, but explain exactly um, what pies you've got your fingers in because you're doing a lot with all your bodies. Yeah. So I think... To fully understand this in in the context of wool, that might be a bit of a long explanation, but I'm going to say it anyway. The background of how I actually got into journalism initially, um, which has segued into freelance lifestyle writing and now podcasting, um, is that on the farm at home, I was the eldest of four and we've got one brother and two other sisters. And I think that I always knew, and many people will be able to relate to this, that that I wasn't going to be the one that was working on our farm. 
um, and nor did I think that I had particular talents, I suppose, in that area. And so I think I always knew for a long time that I needed to try and find something else to do. But I really, because farming and agriculture was viewed as so important to not only my family, but everyone that I ever knew when I was growing up, then I, I really did want to be involved in that. And so <laughs> the two things that I wanted to be, you'll laugh at this, I don't know if you know this, um, is a journalist to work for the country hour or the weather girl. <laughs> <laughs> And did you try and be the weather girl? And no way, back, or you didn't try. <laughs> no way. Thank, thank goodness. Would have because, been good at it. Oh, <laughs> excuse I mean, me, don't, Penny. You, now, <laughs> you would have also been good at the weather girl. <laughs> that would have gone down like a leisurely. But I also wanted to study weather, and oh, so when right. you understand my background, That's I just a bit more eyebrow. Well, is it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted wanted to do something that contributed to agriculture, number one, that was taken seriously, um, number two, and that would also be, mm, acceptable is the wrong word, but that, that my parents would be happy that I was doing, but not only my parents, like also anybody else that cared to care or weigh in of which there were quite a few Mm. people in my lives and so um (laughs) the which is which was is wonderful um don't get me wrong um (laughs) so I studied journalism and we were told from day dot that we'd never get never get a job if we weren't serious about this then just leave the lecture now and just give up at the beginning and I thought okay how am I going to um niche myself here and then Um, yeah, I just knew that I wanted to work for the country hour and I did work for the ABC, um, rural team for 11 years all over Australia telling, yeah, just interviewing farmers every day. Such a good job, such an awesome job, quite full on, but, um, I just feel like, yeah, it was a great extension of my childhood and that empathy that you have for, um, for, for farmers and people living on the land and mm. yeah and anyway and so when my time came to leave the ABC I started lifestyle writing and this was awesome for me because I you know you are constrained with the ABC in a way and it has to be quite newsy and the devil's mm. advocate comes in and sometimes the stories are quite negative and so to not be battened down by all of that was wonderful and I got to um, start sharing really gorgeous stories of women um, in particular on on the land and um, write some stories for country style and I've interviewed you like quite a few times now <laughs> on my podcast. Thanks, and, thanks for that. <laughs> and for country style and, yeah, because it, it's just it's it's beautiful to be able to have the freedom to think someone's doing actually I say think, but I know like, yeah, the context is long reaching and so can tell um, what is kind of new and what makes a good story and, yeah, and also know the avenues of where to tell it. And so to answer your question about podcasting, so I, I love writing, but I what comes easily to me is just interviewing people and podcasting is so accessible and it's really taking off at the minute. So I work for Grazy Her, 
magazine for uh, its podcast, its flagship podcast, Life on the Land. I am executive producer of podcasts with Grazy Her. There are new podcasts in the pipeline that will be coming out um, this year and in the years to come. And so we develop, produce, and, and I also do the editing for all of these podcasts as well. And then I have my own one, which is called uh, Company and this one, and I do a bit of other freelance work for, um, in the past I've worked for government and corporates and other small businesses. And yeah, I really just love the creativity of pulling together an audio story, um, as compared to writing one or, yes, that's what I, that's what I do. (laughs) That's my, yeah. And you're so good at it. And you, um, like mostly you seem to tell stories from the land or like produce podcasts that tell stories from the land. And it's really nice because a few years ago, no one was doing that. I mean, even pre-podcasts, a few years ago, no one wanted to tell stories from the land. And it's really great um, for people in the land to have that voice. And it's great for people in the cities that are interested in hearing about it that, that wouldn't otherwise get to. So yeah. I love what you do. I think it's really good. That's the best thing about podcasts. If you have a story and you want to tell it, you actually can. And if the story is any good, it should have cut through. And, you know, I think we're still sort of waiting for cut through uh, on a bit of a bigger scale. But this is like what women behind wool is. We think that there's um, valuable, awesome stories to be told there, of which there are. So you can do a podcast and it can be as long as you like or as short as you like. And, yeah. You can choose to listen or leave it. If you love it, you share it with somebody else. If you don't really like it, that's fine. Power to the people with podcasts, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, <laughs> enough about me. I think okay. <laughs> I think I'm done. I think you've heard enough from me. So I want to know what, what your days as a kid were like in the shed and stuff. What comes to mind? Do you know, it's funny because, yeah, like you said that to me the other day and I've been thinking about it because kind of what you alluded to, it was just completely normal. So it wasn't like, um, oh, one day, you know, like I would have special memories of like going to the zoo or something that was exciting. Mm, That's so true. It was just normal every day. And I was thinking about, like, I remember we, um, Mum and dad only live like on the edge of town, but we still used to have a shearer's cook that would come out in and cook in the shearer's huts, like when shearing was on. And I remember like riding my bike up there after school and he used to give us lollies and he'd bake cakes in the um, big brick oven thing, which you and I actually like had the sleepover in those shearer's oh. huts when we were teenagers. <laughs> That's where I used to go to. I love that place. You know that place. Um yeah, I remember that and I remember um, I can still feel the um, the feeling of spring when Dad would always go out and um, be selling rams at what we call the Ram Depot and going out and taking Smoko out to him and that feeling of spring. It's always my favourite time of year out there just when the weather starts turning in September. You know, Dad would just have clients driving in, you know, every, I guess, hour or something and selecting a few rams and taking them and another one coming again and he was too busy to come home so we'd go and um, take Smoko out to him. So I guess when we were kids we were just more like little kids. We were just sort of on the peripheral and then, I don't know, at some stage it changed to, okay, you guys are workers, you can yes. get in and help. <laughs> um, and... 
yeah, and so then I guess it progressed to, righto, your jobs are chipping birds, um, you know, dredging, like all those kinds of things. That never really changed. And then once I, um, and I went back to work um, at home on the farm when I finished school, like my gap year was the first year that I was sort of employed there properly. Um, on the books, and- so they say. On the books, only just. It was definitely I needed a union rep because I did. So they say, yes. Getting paid (laughs) anywhere near minimum wage. (laughs) But anyway, um, pay aside, um, I really loved it. And then we've, mum and dad and my uncle have got a um, sheep stud. So we take the sheep to shows every year, which involves a lot of um preparation like the the sheep live the ones that you select for the shows live in a ram shed for like six months of the year so it's kind of like I always explain it to people as like a day spa they get fed you know a proper you know nice mix of food twice a day and um you have to go down and trim their feet and you know their horns and look after them and print and play with them and stuff and my job leading up to shows for like a couple of months before the shows was to trim the wool like you kind of make the wool on the back or all over um kind of even and it grows better and blah 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 and that was my favorite because normally um in any kind of like sheep farm you don't really get to be up close a lot with the same sheep and get to know them but that way you get to know like all the breeding families and see their traits because you're literally spending all day with them and plus you get your little pets that always come up and like you know nudge you to get some food out of your hand or chew on your shirt while they're standing next to you and stuff um so I love that like that's that was my favorite job and that's where I really you know adored that part of of the operation you have in terms of like the touch and feel of wool, mm. you've had a lot of experience like through through that and you know because pe- some people never would have felt wool in their life and that's part of what we're trying to tap into to actually get people to feel a beautiful wool product and then hopefully they never turn back. Yeah, that's exactly it. And um, everyone, like everyone we've spoken to on the podcast and um I think has said it too, but everyone that works with wool gets pretty passionate about it, like that works with merino wool in particular. And I think that's why, because it is this soft, rich, luxurious fibre. It also, um, you know, has that really strong lanolin smell that's so emotive. And I think that's why, like, wool producers become such diehard fans. Like we still get messages from people that are like, um, my grandparents had a sheep farm, but I, you know, and I've never lived on one, but I always buy wool, you know, they, they fall in love with it. And I think um, it is because it's such a sensory thing, you know? Yes. Yeah. You're so, you're so right. We're all complete converts. Well, I'm not even a convert. I haven't, there's never been anything else. And also I've spoken a lot about like that influence in your life and we've always, it's, we've always been really proud to wear wool and that's been mm. something that's been heralded and championed and celebrated by generations of my family and all the people that I knew growing up. Growing up, And whenever there was a new woolen product or clothing label, it was always celebrated, bought, given as Christmas presents, birthday presents, everything. And... Mm. As, and when Lady Kate came to the fore, that was exactly how everybody that I knew felt. So, but tell me a little bit about 
when it did start to occur to you that this was that um, creating your own 100% merino wool knitwear label was something that you thought you could do and you wanted well, to do? I think the thing is, you know, when you when you're producing this stuff at home, you're on such a quest, like every year at shearing and throughout um, classing throughout the year and selecting the different bloodlines to breed with and stuff. You're on such a quest to get, you know, better wool each year and, and, you know, the perfect fleece kind of thing. So then you're really proud of what you produce and you live and breathe it. And then you go into the stores and um, it's either heaps of acrylics and synthetics or, um, you know, the token wool jumper in there. And this was definitely true when we were kids because dad would make us buy the token wool jumper. <laughs> was like terrible quality. It was like, um, you know, itchy, rough, whatever. And I get it because that is way cheaper um, for people to use that kind of yarn than it is to use the stuff that I use. But, um, yeah, I wanted to make sure there's an option um, for people who, do really care about the feel of it and that do really want to have something that that feels luxurious and to kind of showcase it like a lot of people think if I want to buy a really beautiful jumper it would have to be made of cashmere or like a cashmere silk blend or something they don't even know that it could be made of merino wool and that it would be just as soft um, and would still, you know, have all the other attributes as in it's warm it's breathable I know that breathable things are really hard um word to quantify but th- does it make sense to you when I say breathable oh yeah like it's yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. so you know what it's like in natural fibers I think if you wear them all the time and then you go back to wearing like some sort of synthetic shirt especially on like a humid day or something where you're sweating you soon realize like the value of wearing like breathable fibers how much yeah. nicer it is on your skin um, yeah. and how good it feels I think and it's was, um it oh, yeah. just the the word breathable is is exactly that it regulates your wool particularly regulates your own temperature really Mm. well it lets you sweat um but it but it also keeps you warm when you need to be and perhaps you could have done that in a day you could have had a morning where you're wearing a wool jumper and you might have been sweating Mm. um and then it gets a bit colder and the those two don't conflict at all when you're wearing mm. the garment and also when you're wearing something synthetic I always find I get so hot like mm. this kind of unnatural hotness yeah. where it's all trapped in and yeah well it's plastic right it's like wearing yeah. a garbage bag in a different way and you know there's synthetics can replicate um a lot of the things with you know wool or cotton or whatever but at the end of the day wool and cotton they're natural fibers like they're gonna have certain properties that can never be replicated and that um temperature control what do you call it temperature regulation and breathability is something that yeah they haven't that I don't think any synthetic fabric synthetic fiber can can um mimic you know no yep exactly yeah right. um so, so yeah that's why I started Lady Kate so I'd always kind of um thought about wouldn't it be good if someone did something like this <laughs> you know how you start off saying like someone should do that and then after a little while you're like well, no one else is doing it. Maybe I should do it. <laughs> um, and and it's also um, similar to what you were saying about um, wanting to do something 
some contri- contribution to the industry that you grew up grew up in and that you love. And I always wanted to go back to the farm, and that was kind of like on the cards, not on the cards. Um, and when I met my husband, um, you know, it soon became obvious that, like, for me to go back to the farm would not work that well for him and what he wanted to do. And you, know, we had to make a decision about, um, you know, what where you're going to end up being. And that's when I was like, okay, I've been thinking about this idea for years. I'm going to take the plunge and do it. So the rules are you have to use really, really, really good quality wool and you have to design knitwear that um, is appealing to um, a younger generation of women, not just like the pearl button cardigans that um, were at already available made yeah. out of really nice wool that, that me as a then, you know, 29 or whatever year old didn't really feel like wearing. And, um, and then the designs, because the yarn that um, I use is like expensive by its nature because it's the good stuff, they have to be things that are um, timeless and that show off the best qualities of wool. So really um, classic knitwear that's either um, really nice and soft, lightweight to wear next to your skin or really chunky and warm, but things that are going to showcase wool to um, someone that's never worn it before, that they're going to see that design and think, oh, I'd really love to wear that, like they'll buy it based on how it looks. And then when they try it, they're like, that wool feels beautiful. And now I'm going to always ask for Australian Merino wool whenever I go into a shop and we're going to, like, get the word out there and and that, you know, women, Australian women will become champions for the fibre because if you think about it, to have something that, like, the Australian wool, Australian wool producers are famous the world over for producing this fibre, like, and being the best or one of the best in the world at it. So it's something that all Australian women should be really proud of. They should know about it and they should be wanting to advocate for it. And I think they would if they knew. We've just got to help get the message out there. Yeah, totally. And this other thing that um, it's it's 100% Australian merino wool. And so why let the best of our wool go offshore um, and be sold in the likes of Europe and Italy? And why not mm. get it back into Australia on our own shelves where we can fully celebrate it. And I think like L- Lady Kate, the your jumpers are just the most divine things ever to wear. And, mm-hmm. you know, yes. four or five years later, they still feel and hang the same way on your body. And I think you and others have also like really bridged a big gap there. I think when we were growing up, we could see perhaps in the AWI, the Australian Wool Innovation magazine, these beautiful designs that were being showcased elsewhere in the world but not have any accessibility to them in Mm. Australia, and that is changing. And so in a fashion sense, that's so wonderful, but also in a sustainability sense, um, I've just noticed, I mean, we're always watching it, you and I and anybody else who's passionate about wool, but... Uh, in the last two years, especially, that is is really really starting to catch on in an, like and grow more popular. I'm talking about not sustainability, but Australian wool being recognised that it is a natural, fully mm. biodegradable, sustainable fibre that people invest in only once. They don't have to buy a new one every year, and yeah. that they're saving money and the environment too. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know. I feel like it's this thing of like um, people that sort of, I guess, jump on the bandwagon or brands in particular that do, you know, that term greenwashing? Like it's like, um, yeah, all about like we're the greenest and that word like sustainability is like if you really take it at face value is any brand producing something that's truly sustainable that like literally doesn't take more from the environment than it puts back. I don't really believe that's true, but wool is more sustainable. It's a renewable product and it's not um, based on synthetics, which are, you know, petrochemicals and all that mess. So it's almost like everyone's looking for this new fangled whiz kid of a fiber that you know we've never heard of before that must be some fantastic thing and it's like yeah we're producing it we've been producing it in Australia for 200 years it feels beautiful it's like a luxury product it's natural it's renewable and it's grown in Australia it's supporting Australian farmers as well yeah Yeah. so it ticks a lot of boxes so many boxes and for some reason, if your wool jumper gets old because you've been wearing it for 20 years and it's got a hole in it, you could literally throw it on a compost heap and it would disintegrate. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. Yeah. 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 Like um, you might be left with like the label or something, like if the label's made of like, you know, nylon or what have you. But, yeah, it will completely decompose. I think it's uh, who was it? Maybe AWI or someone um, somewhere that I read a study where they, did the experiment and it was like six months or something for it to completely decompose. That's amazing. What's the feedback that you get? You've had a few, you've had some pretty big names wearing some of your most beautiful jumpers. What do they say about it? Um, Well, everyone says really nice things. I love, um, but obviously like they're not going to turn around and say your jumper's crap. Um, but, but they don't have to say anything. No, that's true. I get, um, I get a real mix. Like there's people that um, always buy wool and they love it and, you know, think that my knitwear is very, very good quality wool and it's especially, um, I guess, important to me when I get a wool grower's tick of approval, like, when I um, have been going around to like the Easter show and those sort of things before, um, whenever like a wool producer comes into my stand and like has a feel of the jumpers, I'm always holding my breath because you're like, oh Christ, they're, you know, if you get their tick of approval, you know, you're doing the right thing. And then I get other people that say, I've never worn wool before. I've never really thought it was a good thing. I always had a bad experience with it. And I'm so surprised by how soft it is or, you know, I'm still wearing my jumper from like three or four years ago. I absolutely love it. And, again, that they mean more to me, like getting the stamp of approval from the people that really, really know and the stamp of approval from the people that didn't know at all what wool was like. I think I've told this story a thousand times over, but I will retell it a thousand times over again and again and again. You had a pop-up store, I think it was in Chatswood a couple of years ago, and I was there buying a jumper and I just kind of stood back and had a little spy on what was happening and I just can't tell you how many because that's how women shop isn't it they put their hand out and inadvertently feel the garment because Mm. they want to look at it and so they touch it and then anyway and they just would like touch the jumpers and 
feel more and feel more and linger there and comment about it. And they weren't even my jumpers, but that proudness again, you're like, yes, for you and for wool, you're like, they are, they are loving that. And they, and, and also I was surprised by how they were surprised at how beautiful it was. Like it, like they, there are people that have never felt wool before. Yeah. And I think that's the thing, which, you know, brings me into why, um, you know, you and I got onto doing women behind wool as well, is that there are so many women, um, people, but women in particular that are receptive to this message. It's not as if they aren't interested in wool or dislike wool. Um, it's just that we've, we've got to get it out there. So whether it's through Lady Kate being able to show them what it feels like and, and give them that whole like emotive um, kind of thing or um, through Women Behind Wool, which is telling the stories about the people that produce it. Like it's partly educating but it's um, partly inspiring, you know, and, and they're receptive to the message. You know, it's just um, they didn't know before but that doesn't mean they don't want to know. Yes. And I think um, when we start talking about women behind wool and how it all came together, it is also useful to provide a little bit of background, which is that this was an idea of yours um, to do some, to do a campaign called women behind wool to showcase the women of the wool industry. And we were just talking about it as buddies. And I said, because I'm just such an avid podcaster pest, (laughs) I was like, Oh, well, we can make a podcast. And then you immediately were like, yes, let's do that. And then it's just evolved to become this two-pronged thing in another sense that it is you get the visual, but then you also Mm. get the audio and and the tone of the person's voice when they talk about wool and how much they love it and how they've grown up with it or what they've been able to achieve through the industry. Um, So that's a little bit about how we kind of came together with yeah, and sorry, and so good because originally, yeah, I did see it as a visual thing of like, you know, um, showcasing some of the women behind the wool industry, but their stories are, are too um, deep and intricate to be able to just get that across um, purely as a social media post or a whatever other, you know, media you're using. It, it really does need a half-hour podcast to be able to tell it and to um, to be able to truly convey the side of the wool industry that you and I see and know growing up in it, you know? Mm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that as well. And so hopefully what we're creating is, well, not hopefully, what we are creating and hopefully it can travel is like the wool jumper itself almost, timeless things, products, podcasts, stories that people can refer back to again and again and again to increase their knowledge or to tell other people about um, how wool's growing and the people behind the industry if they're interested in it. Yeah, and and to give them another perspective, like to give the industry a different voice because I feel like anything that makes it to the news is quite often a negative story like, um, I don't know, someone's anti-wool or anti-animals or... um, wool prices are rubbish or, you know, yeah, those sorts of things. Not enough wool around. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, or otherwise, if it's a good news story, it's quite often um, seen as spin or it's um, something that's very much like from the level of the top of the industry. Like there's 
if you there's no human side to it you know what I mean yeah whereas this yep. is like explaining to people like introducing them to the women and and we choose chose women in particular because I think that um you know there, there's plenty of blokes doing amazing things in the wool industry but um we just tend to hear about the blokes more and for me I'm more interested in <laughs> just hearing the women's stories just for a change of pace and not listening to the bloke stories all the time and um and it gives it a human face like it explains what they're doing at a grassroots level so um whether it's um something innovative whether it's um showing the passion that's behind what they do and trying to um, improve their, the product that they're producing or, or the way they produce it through different farming methods and things like this it's really giving people something that they can relate to so that a they understand more about what's going on in the industry and b the next time one of these negative stories pops up in the news or wherever people have a counterpoint like a counter argument to say well yeah you might be saying that that's what people in the wool industry do but I've been listening to those podcasts that explain you know that woman she's doing the opposite and she's trying to change that and um it just gives them something else that they can reference and i also think it is a um getting a bit off track but um the human story of people in agriculture is changing a little bit through podcasting now but through our main news mediums it is a real void because rural news um, organizations often just focus very heavily on rural news, which often um, can be negative because we're so, uh, and they're often weather dominated stories and we're so, um, mm. we're, we're so vulnerable to weather and there's little room for in-depth human stories, which really truly show the passion. Um, and w- what we're trying to do is create another more deeper avenue for people to just feel like, they've been on a farm and they mm. know this person because they can hear the tone in their voice or the beautiful way that they explain something that's never been explained to them like that in a newspaper article before. Yeah, exactly. And they can connect, right? Yeah. And the other thing is, um, you know, to use, I think I was saying to you earlier today, to use this podcast as a resource for other people in the industry. Like I had, um, someone that commented on a Facebook post of mine the other day about mulesing and saying, you know, sheep farmers are cruel, what a terrible thing they do. And where I could write back and um, explain it from my point of view, it'll sound as if I'm just trying to, you know, I don't know, sweep it under the carpet because I'm selling wool or something like that. But instead I can say, go and listen to our podcast with Meredith, Dr. Meredith Shield last year. She explains perfectly what it was like to come um, from a paediatric background as someone from outside the industry seeing um, a process like mulesing for the first time and realising there was no other solution and she came up with a solution and, and you know, fast forward 10 years to what it is now. It's, um, you know, it gives um, wool growers and um, people in the industry a tool that they can use to explain it. If they can say, if they say, you know, you might not believe me if I say it, but here it is in someone else's words mm. to explain the full story to mm. you. Mm. A highly shareable. And Dr. Meredith Shield's story is so incredible. Like I've listened back to it so many times and every time I'm like, and I, every time I get something new and I'm like, she, she's it's just a, a, a truly unique story. 
And what uh, she's done is amazing. I know. We're the biggest fangirls of Meredith Shield, aren't we? <laughs> yes. So <laughs> we do bang on about this. <laughs> this so listen, everybody. Um all right. Well, I feel like we have had an awesome chat. It's been good catching up. <laughs> <laughs> but so starting from now, for people who are interested, uh, Women Behind Wool will be introducing a new female every week. Uh, the podcast will drop on Wednesday mornings at six o'clock. So you can find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And there's some gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous shots and imagery that will accompany that as well, Pen. And they can see that on our Instagram account at Women Behind Wool or on Facebook or on our website. Yeah, and we can't wait to bring you these stories um, and profile these eight wonderful women that are doing fantastic things in the wool industry. 